The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, let's start today by dispelling a couple of notions. One is that fairy tales are of interest only to children and the grown-ups who have been tasked with reading to children. Well, children might enjoy fairy tales, but anyone interested in narratives and their power in the way they shape our view of ourselves and our society has to reckon with the almost invisible omnipresence of fairy tales. Fairy tales make us who we are as individuals and as a culture. If that's not a subject for grown-ups to consider, I don't know what is. And the second notion to dispel is the one that you might have brought to it, as I did, before I talked to our guest today. The notion that, well, yes, we can analyze fairy tales for their impact, but won't we find a long history of upholding the current power structures? Won't we find in these stories meek young girls waiting for their prince to come, and strong rulers laying down the law and generally delivering the kind of lessons that people in power want the rest of us to learn, to keep us scared, maybe, or content with our meager allotment in life, to keep us docile and dumb. Well, Jack Zipes, who is one of the world's great experts in fairy tales, has a different point of view. He's spent his life gathering, analyzing, translating, publishing, teaching, learning, and writing about fairy tales. From an early recommendation from a surprising source to his current no less passionate position, Jack Zipes on fairy tales today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you for stopping by. And this conversation with Jack Zipes is going to start out with a bang, people. I said there was a surprising source for his lifelong interest in fairy tales. You probably won't guess who that source was. I will let Jack tell you that story. But first, let's do some literary news. I've got a couple of articles for you today, one hot off the press and one a few years old both of them having to do with Chaucer. It's the summer of Chaucer here at the History of Literature. We barely mentioned him at all, the father of English literature. We barely mentioned him for years, mostly because I did all this research, and then I was planning to do a multi-part episode, and then I was, I was stymied by his sexual assault allegations, the allegations against it, which I had no idea what to make of those. I was trying to figure out if he was a rotten guy or not and what exactly the documentary evidence was. And and in the end, I sort of lost steam. So we had this delay, unfortunately. But then the floodgates opened, thanks to the wonderful scholar, Chaucer scholar, Marion Turner, who was already proving to be a fan favorite based on your emails to me. She came here twice, once to discuss her biography of the wife of Bath, and most recently to discuss her biography of the great poet himself. She makes a compelling case that Chaucer is worth our time. And so I was very interested to see a headline in the newspaper informing me that a new document has been identified as having been written in Chaucer's hand, the father of English literature, his handwriting 
confirmed and compared with a document that's been known about for what was that document? Are you excited? A draft of one of the tales, perhaps, or one of his other poems, maybe a letter to a fan of his verse? Well, not quite that exciting. He was actually asking his boss for some time off. His boss, as it happened, was King Richard II. He spells his name in the letter G-E-F-F-R-A-Y which, come on, spell your first name the normal way. That's what I've always said. And he has a few careless mistakes in the letter. Maybe you think that's not worthy of a great poet, but lots of writers can't spell or write very well. F. Scott Fitzgerald being chief among them. Maybe in some ways only a great writer, or at least a confident one, would submit something with mistakes to a king. Careless? Or simply carefree. Either way, it's interesting to think about. And even better, by having an example of Chaucer's handwriting confirmed, we might be able to find other documents that he also wrote. And we can fill in that portrait like so many other historical figures from that era or even a little after or before. Our biographies are full of he likely did thises and may have done thats. Well, now we can complete it with, hey, he did do this. We know it. Confirmed. Although Marion Turner found a very creative way around that issue for her biography of Chaucer, she wrote about the places where we know that he lived. How did those settings, which we have and can know, interact with the poetry, which we also have and can know? It kind of brings a picture of Chaucer, who was traveling through those places, residing in them, inhabiting them, absorbing them, how they're reflected in his poetry. So it's good to have those things and know them, although we always want to know it a little better, which is why we're here. This article that I just described took me back to an earlier article, which is even more interesting from a substantive standpoint. It's still not an early draft of poems or anything, but it gives us a glimpse of Chaucer's personality. Adam Pinkhurst was the son of a small landowner in Surrey. He also had an interesting job. Some scholars nailed down Pinkhurst's handwriting, and it turned out his signature also matched some handwriting on Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, along with some earlier works and his translation of Boethius's Consolations of Philosophy. Now, we have learned Adam Pinkhurst. That's his name. We knew for a while that Chaucer had an Adam in his life, but he was known to the world only as Adam the Scrivener. Last name uncertain, and we knew him because he was a bad scrivener, according to Chaucer. Chaucer called him out in a poem called... Ch scrivener, by the way, for those of you who aren't familiar with Scrivener from Bartleby, was someone who wrote things down for someone. He wrote them out. So this is, this is uh, Adam the Scrivener is the guy who was writing Chaucer's verse. Chaucer called him out in a poem called Chaucer's Words Unto Adam His Own Scriven. He basically said, Adam, you worthless scrivener. I've had to correct so many errors of yours, done so much rubbing and scraping thanks to your negligence and incompetence. I'm going to curse you. 
<laughs> with scabs. But Chaucer had other options, of course. The, Adam wasn't the only scrivener available. And he, in spite of that, he went back to Adam several times. So that suggested that maybe Adam wasn't so bad at his job. And Adam, for his part, gave us an understated but powerful line of his own. When the cook's tale ends, unfinished by Chaucer, who died before he could finish it, Adam, now we know Adam Pinkhurst, wrote in his own hand, Of this tale Chaucer wrote no more. If that line had been in Chaucer's handwriting, we might see someone giving up the rest of the tale knowingly, winking at us, referring to himself in the third person, wrapping a tale with a bit of meta like a curly cue at the bottom of a page. But no, it's Adam, the attacked scrivener, who comes in after the fact and writes. Scholars say that, that reading this feels to them like an elegy. Adam says, of this tale, Chaucer wrote no more. Was he saying that in, in workmanlike fashion? The way you might say, this is it, people, I'm done here. Or don't look for others, don't look for other pages or other verse. This is the end. Or was he himself broken up, bereft, full of grief? I find it poignant either way. So that's the literary news for that. Oh, oh, wait. Before we begin with Jack Zipes, I almost forgot. We have a new request for you, the listeners. Remember when we asked for your examples of literary awe? Well, we're on to the next topic. Who would you most like to have as a guest on the History of Literature podcast? Which author, which scholar, which celebrity, which person, send your suggestions to History of Literature podcast at gmail.com. That's History of Literature Podcast. There's no the. History of Literature Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to our website, historyofliterature.com, and click on the contact link to send us a message that way. There's also a link where you can record yourself if you'd like to uh, deliver your message by voicemail. But if so, please be warned that it will cut you off after two minutes. So be ready and be concise. Now, a dream guest, your dream guest. I want you to think big, people. This is your chance. I tend to, you know how I like my guests, what I like to talk to them about. I, I like when they choose a book that's 50 years old, at least. And that's because, you know why I emphasize that 50-year cutoff with guests? Because, let me let you in on a little secret, celebrities and authors tend to choose their friends' books otherwise. <laughs> their friends' books are not always all that good. Uh, it's great that you want to share, great that you're loyal to your friend, great that you're scratching each other's backs. I get it, but I'm trying to hit bigger targets here, reach a broader audience find things of interest to lots of people. And the 50-year cutoff, I find, tends to shake things out a little bit. We're no longer so concerned with uh, helping out of someone we know. We're more concerned with finding a book we love and we want to talk about. But hey, I'll make exceptions even to that rule if the guest is right. So where was I? Think big. 
Who do you want to hear from the most? Talking about literature. Stephen King, Michelle Obama, Bruce Springsteen. We can think big people. Maybe your favorite author or actor or scientist or pundit or public figure. Maybe it's someone I've never heard of. Who would be good on the show? Let me know your thoughts. And I'll try to deliver one of these by Christmas this year. A gift to all of you from all of us here at the History of Literature podcast. Speaking of which, speaking of gifts, today's gift is Jack Zipes who will join us after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Jack Zipes, Professor Emeritus of German and Comparative Literature at the University of Minnesota. His previous works include The Irresistible Fairy Tale and a number of books for which he served as the editor and or translator, including The Original Bambi, The Original Folk and Fairy Tales of the Brothers Grimm, and The Sorcerer's Apprentice. He's here today to discuss a new book, Buried Treasures, The Power of Political Fairy Tales. Jack Zipes, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I was wondering if we could start where your book does with a remarkable tale involving Albert Einstein. Would you mind uh, relaying that story to us? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll try to also uh, imitate my grandmother, uh, okay. my grandmother's uh, English. <laughs> okay, here it goes. Once upon a time, when the famous scientist Albert Einstein worked at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, a tiny old woman approached him as he was walking home. She was schlepping a skinny young boy of about six or seven who was dragging his feet. Mr. Einstein, she called out, 
in a strong Central European accent. Mr. Einstein, stop your tracks and help me. Einstein was taken aback. He didn't know what to do except stop. How can I help you? He responded with a smile as he took out a pipe. Einstein, Einstein, stop, stop. You shouldn't smoke. It will kill you, the old woman said. Again, Einstein was taken aback, and he put away his pipe. Is that better? Much better, <laughs> the old woman said as she drew her timid grandson toward Einstein. Jakey, stop fiddling and listen to this great man. Now she turned her attention back to Einstein. Me, Einstein, I want you should tell me what my grandson must do to become educated like you. I want he should be a great scientist like you. Einstein didn't hesitate with his reply. Fairy tales. He should just read fairy tales. All right, the woman replied. For no, for what then? What should he read after that? More fairy tales, Einstein stated bluntly. He took out his pipe and continued walking toward his home. The old woman was silent for a moment, but when she grabbed hold of Jakey's hand and began dragging him through the park, she suddenly stopped. You heard, Jackie, she pointed her finger at the frightened boy. You heard what the great man said, read fairy tales, do what the man said, or God help you. <laughs> and she whisked her grandson away. So uh, that's how my, my, my grandmother, we called her Bubby. That's how she talked. Yeah. Well, and it, it that story it almost reads like a fairy tale, and including with a a kind of uh, some magic words and a, a potential curse there at the end. Right. <laughs> Definitely. So, how did that encounter go on to affect your life? Did you start reading fairy tales from the beginning, and and then just never stop? Well. It was my mother who had was a great influence on me. I, my grandmother was a remarkable woman uh, who came from either Lithuania or maybe Ukraine. I'm not too sure. She she came from one of these uh, Eastern European countries and, uh, and fled during the pogroms and then landed here in, in New York City. I never, never really learned English all that well. And her best language is Yiddish. Mm. So... I, I would say that encounter reinforced what I already was trying to was learning from my mother, who used to uh, read and Hans Christian Andersen and Brothers Grimm to us at night. Me and my brother listen, uh, mm. and then I also got stuck on the public library. I, I became a member there, and I had a card, and I used to love to go there and take books out and spread them on the floor. I couldn't take them home and spend two or three hours reading various books, uh, Jack London and uh, dog stories and all sorts of stories, including fairy tales. Mm. And you call yourself now a, a fairy tale junkie. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> I, yeah I, I, I did. I fell in love with uh, sort of uh, all the antiquarian stores that, and 
book shows were, and sales and anything that led to me to go around and sniffing books yeah. that I enjoyed. Yes, I, I am a junkie. I yeah. still am. And why fairy tales? What fascinates you about that particular genre? Well, you know, they really transported me mm. in my imagination to uh, another society, another land, another country where the laws or customs were totally different from mm-hmm. the customs I experienced. And so for me, it gave me a way to step back. It, it really estranged me in a way, reading fairy tales and, and, and other tales, not just fairy tales, but fairy tales in particular because they were so imaginative and also because of the uh, justice, the type of, let us say, natural justice that occurs in these tales appealed to me to a great extent mm. because life was not like that. Right. So when we hear the word fairy tale, a lot of us probably picture Snow White or Cinderella, but it can include a lot more uh, than just a, a handful of stories that we're most familiar with. How do you define it? What's your working definition of what is or is not a fairy tale? Well, you know, it's very difficult to do that because fairy tales really have consumed other genres mm. and they are really tales that are tales of imaginative justice, I would say. Mm. And these tales go all the way back to the Greco-Roman period. It's not just the Brothers Grimm, but these tales originated way before we even called these tales fairy tales. It wasn't actually until 1697 when Madame Dolois brilliant writer. She wrote during the period that Charles Perrault, who was famous also for so-called inventing fairy tales. But these writers didn't call their tales fairy tales until Madame Donois in 1697 began calling her stories Conte Fay. Conte Fay is simply fairy tale. Mm. And her tales were very not secular. For instance, there's nothing about Christianity or any other religion with regard to the tales that she wrote. The judges, let us say, the spirits that regulated sort of the justice in these tales were actually fairies. Mm. And these fairies were very powerful and it caught on. And uh, then when the English and Germans began developing their fairy tales, they for some strange reason, also followed suit and used Madame Donois' title for fairy tales. And so you can't really define what a fairy tale is except to say it's a narrative of imagination in which the justice and compassion are stronger than most tales in the world. Mm. And you didn't mention the word children. Is part of the definition that their tales designed to be told to children, or is that a misconception that we might have? Total misconception, total, because it stemmed from the oral tradition. Most people did not know how to read or write until the 20th century. And so what did they do in the evening? They told tales to one another. And these tales were repeated and stemmed from the experiences, not only of the peasants, but also 
the upper classes had salons and they told tales also there. So the basis of the written literary fairy tales stems from these amazing tales by common people who could not write that well or didn't write them down, or but they repeated them and they became extremely important in almost every culture in the world. Mm. So, yeah, and you describe in your book the a common view that people have of fairy tales as being kind of quaint and old-fashioned and maybe something you, that one looks at with children briefly with a touch of nostalgia. But as you've said, they're also viewed as very important and very significant and, and having a powerful impact on the way children grow up and imagine themselves and the way we imagine ourselves and the way society imagines itself. So what exactly is at stake with a fairy tale? Is it because it has this sense of justice that it sort of teaches us what justice is or inspires us to to look for higher ideals? Or what's going on with fairy tales? Yeah, fairy tales are fascinating because of the fact that they do not allow uh, kings or queens or the upper classes to get the better of the lower classes. And so Mm. to a certain extent, or maybe even to a great extent, as I said, these tales were told with children around. Children would listen to these tales up through the, as I said, up through the 20th century. They had nothing to do in the evenings. They had no TV or anything like that. And So they were filled with actually brutalities and demonstrating how evil and oppressive the upper classes could be. Mm. And therefore they imagined they wanted a different type of life. And that's why these tales are so imaginative and political at the same time, because they don't, let us say, conceal or cover up the brutality in their lives. Take a tale like Ansel and Gretel where the parents abandon their children in the forest. That happened quite a bit, or where uh, babies were just dropped off at a church because a particular family couldn't afford to have more children. And these incidents are transferred through storytelling, through the common people, so that they can try to resolve the problems that they have, the conditions that they have. Even if you look at a little red riding hood, it's a tale about rape. And they knew exactly, you, you know, when a, a little girl would go into the forest, it was very dangerous for her. And most villages tried to keep the uh, women from leaving the villages or taking walks or into the woods because of the fact that it was very dangerous for them. And so these tales, they tried to deal with the brutality in our lives, try to explain or help us confront difficult problems. Mm. So that almost suggests to me that I guess it would be as opposed to stories that were written or commissioned or promoted by the authorities, whether that's the political authorities or the church or something, to sort of say, here's how we're going to keep the people in line. Here's what we're going to do to to make sure that that people don't get too upset with the harsh conditions. And instead, it's coming up from the people and they're saying, well, things might be harsh and let's deal with that reality. But also, let's let's look at our leaders and say, vanity will be punished or or capricious violence will be punished, or injustice will be punished. And and at the end of the right. day, 
uh, we're going to see that that you know this will we'll have some satisfaction here, even if things right now might seem like we're in a desperate struggle. Right. You summed it up beautifully. In many ways, one could say that the fairy tales were more important to the common people than, let us say, the Bible or the mm. church, uh, religious types of tales that try to dictate, uh, one could say, what the laws are. But, you know, in the fairy tales, once you enter the forest, nobody can regulate the lives of the people. You can't imagine what might happen there, whereas in the civilizing process that we've developed in almost every country really dictates the way that we should run our lives, whereas the fairy tale does not dictate to anything or to mm-hmm. anyone. Right. Okay. So in analyzing fairy tales and taking a kind of grown-up or scholarly approach to them and what they're doing you have a famous predecessor, Bruno Bettelheim, and his book, The Uses of Enchantment. But but I understand that you were kind of immediately opposed to Bettelheim's theories. And yeah. maybe what, what, what was he saying about fairy tales, and what's your view of what he was saying? He tried to apply, or did apply, sort of Freud's theory with regard to children or how we behave with one another and how we deal with trauma or mental difficulties. He was very orthodox in the way that he analyzed the tales based on particular theories that Freud had. By the way, he was a liar. When he came in, I think it was in the 1940s, he fled in from Austria. He was Austrian Jewish, and he fled the, the Nazis. He landed in Chicago. At any rate, he calmed his way. You know, foreigners sometimes with an accent can be very impressive. Mm. And he was a very dictatorial and and lying person. And uh, eventually he committed suicide to end his life. And what he wrote had nothing whatsoever to do with the way children behave. I took some of his theories and tried to test them out in public schools and became a storyteller myself and worked with children. And books were written by parents of children who were under his care about uh, how he harmed children. Mm. So it really is a shame for anyone to read what he wrote because none of it worked. None of it could be applied with regard to children's health or mental difficulty. So I find him to be a very dark character. Mm. Did he think fairy tales were somehow helping children deal with Freudian types of issues as they were developing as human beings, developing into adults? Or yes. yeah. 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 And and you found that that couldn't really be replicated, that it wasn't what he was saying about what was happening in his schools wasn't true. Right. He had, I think it was an institute. Yeah. And in that institute, he trained people to analyze how children were relating to one another, but he never really was a practitioner of, uh, in other words, he did not go for years the way I did and others working with children and seeing how the children themselves behaved and 
set up their own standards with regard to how they wanted to relate to one another, to other human beings, mm. and the difficulties they had. It was just like abysmal, abysmal. Mm. Okay, well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, let's turn to your book, Buried Treasures. Sure. Okay, we are back. So we talked about fairy tales as coming out of an oral tradition and kind of welling up from the people. The stories are out there for the gathering. But of course, that almost seems to skip a step, which is that they come to us in these different variants. And there are authors and illustrators at work in selecting and and probably revising and, and framing them for us, presenting them to us in some way. So I gather that that's kind of what you're setting out to do in Buried Treasures. Is that part of it? Is is letting us uh, see some of these past authors and illustrators and explain exactly what they did? Yeah, I think that there are artists and writers from earlier periods who really contributed to the cultures in which they were living and tried to use their stories or illustrations and so on to deal with major conflicts mm. in, in the world. And so these writers and illustrators whom I've discovered in Europe and also in the United States are extremely important to, let us say, read or reread because uh, they still say something to us that may help us deal with what is going on in the world today. And mm -hmm. so this is one of the reasons why I've excavated or have tried to excavate these really courageous and imaginative, unique people. Remember, I'm a junkie, so I've collected their works over the years, and I finally decided in several years ago, I formed my own printing press called Little Mole and Honey Bear, and I printed books <laughs> for a while. I was a publisher and editor all in one and brought out about five or six books because I had retired from the university. And the publishing houses were too slow for me. Mm. And I tried to gather together the best writers that I knew and issued them through this publishing house. Mm. So can you give us an example or two of, of some of the authors you talk about and tell us how they demonstrate the power and relevance of fairy tales and, and reflect the context of their own era? Sure. I'll begin with Edouard Laboulaye, mm. who was a, a French political writer, actually a major lawyer, one could say, in France during the revolution in the 19th century. And he wrote for three massive collections of fairy tales that had a great deal to do with the rise of democracy. And he also was one of the founders of the Statue of Liberty that was sent as a gift to New York City. Mm. So he's sort of the oldest of the people I collected, but there are others like Yusuf Emery Kellen, 
who was a Hungarian Jew who fought in World War I and became a pacifist because he hated the wars. And after the war, he became a great characterist in Germany and then Switzerland and fled the Nazis and then came to America and worked with the League of Nations and the United Nations and then wrote uh, books for children. One of them is called Yusuf the Ostrich. It's all about an ostrich in Africa who saves American forces because he is a messenger. He's swift and the ostrich knows how to read and write and speak. A great book to have published with wonderful illustrations. Not only the text was by him, but he also did the illustrations. And then, of course, another book that I think is really brilliant is Tistu. The Boy with Green Thumbs of Peace by Maurice Drouin, who was a French a resistance fighter during World War II. And he wrote this amazing book about a boy who has these green fingers and anything he touched would bloom. And he could also end wars because he turned rifles and cannons into, or, or he prevented them from uh, killing and that's a, a novel that is brilliantly illustrated by a friend of mine. And so I could go on and on. There are about 13 or 14 in the book, The Buried Treasures, of writers who actually put their lives on the line because they wrote their stories against fascism. Mm. This was a period that I chose was a period from the First World War to the end of the Second World War. And almost all of them had to flee for their lives because they spoke out or wrote or illustrated. And I chose the ones who developed fairy tales instead of using weapons to combat the fascism that was rising during these times. Mm. And there's a parallel to what's happening today because we're living in a time when fascism is rearing its ugly head again here in America. And not only in America, but also in Europe. There are a lot of politicians who have become dictators and are destroying the lives of people. Putin is a good example, but even here in the United States, we have, we're really threatened by fascism mm. when you get somebody like Mr. Trump. And uh, it, it's really important that we bring back these books so the title of your book refers to political fairy tales. And is this what you mm -hmm. mean, that these were fairy tales that were more than just stories of love or, you know, uh, someday my prince will come, but they are specifically setting out to expose the nature of a an unjust regime or a, a dictatorial type of leader, for example? These are people who actually lived the fairy tales that they wrote, what mm, mm -hmm. one could say. It's really amazing. I mean, when you look at the biographies, which short biographies that, that I wrote in the book about how these people, like Kurt Schwitters, a great major international artist who fled the Nazis and wrote fairy tales opposing them, or another Hungarian, Bela Balac, he too fought in the Hungarian Risings in after World War One, and then the, the philosopher Hans Bloch, who fled the Nazis and opposed the Nazis and, and came to America and, and wrote about hope. 
all of these people, not only did they write these types of imaginative narratives, but they lived them. They lived them and they transformed, or, or let us say, they experimented with different arts in a way to show people what was really, uh, what one could say, evil in the world. And fairy tales generally deal with evil. And so these people, it's not by, not by chance that they turn to the fairy tale, to a, an imaginative literature. I mean, Franz Kafka is another person who did this. We don't call his tales fairy tales, but they're, they're pretty close to that. Mm. So yes, I think that most of the best fairy tales in the world are political and really can provide us with some sort of insight into what is happening to us and, and why it is happening to us. Mm -hmm. Are these mostly people who were rewriting the stories of the Brothers Grimm or, you know, Sleeping Beauty and, and Little Red Riding Hood and so on? Or, or are these fairy tales that they're inventing to say, basically, well, I could write about this as a as a journalist or as an essay, but instead I'll put it in the form of a fairy tale and I'll say it's about a king in a kingdom and, and that way, but it will be clear to my readers that I'm talking about the leader that we're all, we'll all know who I'm actually talking about, but it might be a way for me to avoid the censors or, or to reach people mm -hmm. who otherwise might not be open to hearing this criticism. All of these writers and illustrators I could <laughs> provide you with a list of 40 or 50 more. All of them knew the classical fairy tales. They knew the Brothers Grimm. They knew Anderson. They knew or the tales that came from the past. And they didn't rewrite them. What they did was use a lot of the motifs and the conflicts and rivalries and things that have occurred in uh, fairy tales in a way that they would address, to a certain extent, what was happening in the world uh, so that people would think differently and oppose the type of fascism or oppression that they were facing in the early 20th century. So that you get Bela Balach and Lisa Tetzner wrote a play about a young boy who came from a very proletarian family where they had no food to eat, and, and the young boy goes out to get some bread because this family is starving, and he encounters a rabbit. <laughs> this rabbit talks to him and has huge ears that he turns into propellers, and the rabbit takes the boy throughout the world to show who is causing the misery that mm. everybody is experiencing, and he returns to his family with an understanding of what he has to do, uh, what, what his mission uh, should be or not should be, but that he feels is going to be. So this is an example of what all of these writers were trying to do that I talk about in this book in many different ways. They reinterpreted the motifs and, let us say, incidents that that uh, happen in fairy tales and in a different way because it, they wanted to try to address the problems that people were having at the beginning of the 20th century in Europe and also in North America. Mm. 
You can imagine a story like that being written from the point of view of of a leader or someone who was trying to be sympathetic to uh, a government saying, uh, basically, here was a, a noble, brave uh, leader whose problem was so many people in his country didn't want to work and they were lazy and they wanted uh, mm -hmm. things for free or something. And instead, by by shifting it and being from the point of view of a boy who's trying to get bread, who's hungry, our sympathy is immediately with the boy, and that's the hero, right? We we think, well, of course right. he shouldn't be hungry. He should he should get the bread, and and here's a way to to find what it is that's preventing him from getting it. It's using the power of a narrative and a quest journey and and all of that to kind of put us on the side of the regular folks rather than the people in power who so often get their side of the story told. Right. Exactly. You, you summed it up much better than I can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, okay. So are there any uh, writers in particular that you hope will be rediscovered? I, I, I know you're paying tribute to them in this book, but there must be mm -hmm. some where you think, boy, if people would only know more about this author, he he or she could be someone that they would really enjoy reading. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite writers is Johnny Rodari. He's a, an Italian writer who joined the Italian resistance in the 1930s and was a teacher in uh, high schools. And But after the war, he joined the Communist Party in, in, in Italy and then became a writer and then wrote tales for children that are very sophisticated and uh, appeal both to adults and also to children. But he worked with uh, different schools in Italy after the war and developed all sorts of imaginative, wonderful, unusual fairy tales and also developed a program for children, which I translated called The Grammar of Fantasy. And in that, he supplied sort of the text that I sort of used myself in developing a program here in Minneapolis called Neighborhood Bridges for, for about 20 years. I worked with children in schools and in inner cities and, and helping the children to become masters of their own lives. In other, in other words, we did not want to preach or, or use any pedagogical rules that would show children how they could become autonomous. And for 20 years, it was an amazing experience that I had with about, I trained about 50 or 60 people to work with me. And once the pandemic happened, the program has now disappeared. But mm. A lot of the people who were in that program have set up a another program called Speaking Out. They've come back into the schools. So this is Johnny Rodari's work, and a lot of the stories we use were from the stories that he wrote. He is not known in America. It's a publishing house in uh, New York City that has promised uh, to bring out my book the grammar fantasy one more time, but they've been slow in doing this. And I've translated a number of his fairy tales, but I haven't found a publisher yet who would undertake publishing all of his tales. So that's a mission that I have in front of me, among other missions that I've set for myself. Mm. So 
let me return to the story we began with, with Albert Einstein. What do you think he had in mind when he said that the boy who, I mean, the grandmother said to, to be a, a great person of science, what should the boy do? And, and Einstein replied, fairy tales. What do you think he was thinking? Well, I think maybe I got it from Einstein. I'm not too sure. But I think that the fairy tales really do discuss what the importance of trying to become a your own, let us say, teacher. Mm. In, in other words, I think the question that he raises is how can you be your own person or how is it possible for you to become so autonomous that you can really critique the world and understand the world and make it a better place. So, yeah, the fairy tales do encourage us to try to make the world in an imaginative way a better place for all of us. Mm. That is so beautiful, and it seems like it would have been so present on his mind at that period of his life, especially 1943, that right. it, it wouldn't have been saying... Uh, you know what? Give up science. Um, <laughs> don't right. don't try to push him towards science. It's not worth it. I, look at what happened to me. It's it's more like we might need scientists, but we also need human beings. We need full human yeah. beings, and we need scientists who haven't lost touch with humanity. And and whatever walk of life he goes into, this young boy he will be well served by having a good basis in fairy tales to help him develop that sense of humanity. Right, right. I think he, he was also saying, you've got to use your imagination, young boy, mm. and, mm -hmm. and listen to your heart and listen to what you, you yourself know what is right. You can find out uh, what is right by yourself. You don't need people to tell you how to be compassionate about human beings in the world and our surroundings, our, the, the nature, and so on and so forth. Mm. And for those of us who want to get started, whether it's starting with ourselves or starting with our children or grandchildren, they can turn to the book in my hand, Buried Treasures, <laughs> The Power of Political Fairy Tales. Jack Zipes, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I think we're going to have some some Herman Hesse soon for you fans of his very particular genius and all these others I've been telling you about too. Langston Hughes and guess what? A trip to Australia, our very first one. I'm sorry it's taken us so long to get there, but this one will be worth the wait, I think. My thanks to Jack Zipes for joining me today. Do check out his books. There are many of them. Buried Treasures, The Power of Political Fairy Tales is the most recent. And remember to send me your choice for the big git at historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com or at historyofliterature.com and click on the contact link. Send me your choice for the big get. Who do you want to hear the most? Your dream guest. No suggestions too big or too small. I will consider all of them. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>